The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica, a church that he started on his second missionary journey. And although there were many troubling churches that Paul ministered to, uh, I'm sure that some of them took all of his Christian graces to endure, all of his patience to endure. But this church was not one of them. The church at Thessalonica was a source of much joy, a source of immense joy. And Paul could reflect on this church as a bright spot, a bright beacon of the successes of his ministry. They were a listening church and they were responding church. They were a fruitful church and they were an obedient church. And perhaps the most important thing that we read in this first chapter about them is that they were a gospel-centered church. They believe in reaching out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, there was a young associate pastor of a church in the uh, Central Valley that called me. He was doing some research into churches in our area. He had a person in his youth department that was going to attend uh, Sonoma State University uh, this fall, and he was looking for a good church in our area. And I don't want to characterize this in a negative way, but the generational gap between me and him, him as a youth leader, was very clear by his constant use of the word awesome. Uh, he, he asked questions and he said that he was interested in what God was doing in other parts of the, the country and, and in California, of course, and with every response that I gave to him, he said, oh, that's just awesome, that is awesome. And so he asked me if I would tell him something about our church, and you know me, and you know where I stand. And I said, well, we are a doctrinal church, and we are a preaching church. Our primary focus is the pulpit ministry and the faithful preaching of God's Word. And he said, awesome, awesome. And so he asked me several different things, and he said, well, if this young person comes to your church, how will she get plugged in? And I kept talking about the word, but he kept coming back to this. Well, how will she get plugged in? And I thought, well, is she a hairdryer or what? What is the problem here? <laughs> but I, I did know exactly, I think, what he meant, that he was reaching for the program aspect. What is your program? What do you do there? What's going on there that will minister to her and then she, in turn, can minister? And I said, well, the first thing that she needs to do is to come and listen, that she needs to get plugged in to the pulpit ministry, and to learn the Word of God. And he just said, awesome. <laughs> Only this time I think he meant, now it's time to move on and find another church. But there was another point that I made. He said, what kind of church are you? And I said, we are a Baptist church. We are a historical, traditional, New Testament Baptist church. And I don't think that meant very much to him. And I said that we preach the same doctrines as our forefathers taught going all the way back to the time of Christ and the apostles. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to speak of one of those doctrines that Jesus and the apostles taught. And we've not altered this doctrine in any way. It's a blessed doctrine 
And it's a doctrine that's foundational to our faith. I, I would say that today's sermon is somewhat of a theological sermon. I will speak of regeneration, of justification, of sanctification, and of glorification. These are all doctrines found in the Word of God. But our main concern today is the doctrine of election. And we see it in verses 4 and 5 of this text. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So Paul said to the Thessalonians, I know that you are elected by God. Now what did he mean by that? Well, he meant that God chose you, that you were chosen by God, you are selected by God, that the word of God became effectual in you because you were chosen to receive it. And I would submit to you that that is marvelous doctrine, that God worked in you because he chose you for himself and he gave you the gospel of grace and he is the one that made that gospel of grace work in you to the salvation of your soul. That's the apostles' doctrine. It's Jesus' doctrine. This is Bible doctrine. We find it through in and throughout the Old and New Testaments that God chooses people to salvation. Or should I say that God chose people to salvation? Because this happened long, long before you and I were born. So we've been talking about this doctrine of election and we've taken it from this text as an excursus from the main theme of this letter, which is the steadfast, sanctifying endurance of God's people as they wait on the return of Christ. And Paul mentions election because if we have been chosen by God to eternal salvation, then we will stay faithful till Christ returns. That's part of our assurance. Now, in the study, we've asked some fundamental questions. I'd like to uh, review the first three, but before I do, I want to point out once again that Paul said, I know you are chosen by God. He said, I know it. Well, if sanctification, as I've said, is the main theme of this letter, and God will continue to sanctify them, how are they assured it will happen? How do they know they are the children of God? Now, we'll see that Paul said that he knew it because he saw the evidence in their lives, and this chapter is filled with that evidence. And so he's telling them, if you have the marks of sanctification then you know that you are the elect of God. And if you are the elect of God, then you can have assurance of your final salvation. So there was something that was going on in this church that Paul recognized, and Paul saw this as the markers of true salvation, and he summarized that in verse number 3, where he says, I see your work of faith, and I see the labor of love, and I see your patient hope of Christ. And he means there your steadfast endurance, the unwavering the unwavering uh, endurance, your stand for Christ despite the persecution that you endure. And so this is the proof that he builds on as he continues to encourage them in this letter that the gospel had changed them, their lives were different, they were being sanctified. And that's how Paul knew they were chosen by God. Now, as I've said, we're veering off a little here to concentrate on this doctrine that permeates so much of Paul's letters. Each time that Paul wrote to churches, he knew that God would work his sanctifying work in them because they were chosen. 
And so his doctrine, whatever that might be, whatever had been revealed by the Holy Spirit to him that he taught to the church, they would receive because they were the chosen of God. Question number one that we ask is, what is election? Election is God's intent to save some sinners out of the entire world of lost sinners. It's God's intent according to the pleasure of his will to select some for reasons that are known only to him. Now the fact that God does not save all when he could save all is very clear because God can save anyone he pleases. And so election is God's intent to save the ones that he pleases to save. Election is in the Bible. We see it in these verses. Paul will come back to this again in the second letter in an even more powerful way. So we can't deny that it's here. It's a Bible doctrine and it's God's sovereign pleasure to save and to intend to save whomever he wills. Secondly, we ask the question, who chose us? And there's no difficulty discerning the answer to this. The text says God chose you. It is the election of God. But as clear as that answer may be, there are some who believe that we choose ourselves, that we choose to believe, that God looked down through time and he saw that we would choose to believe. And so based on that choice, God chose us. I think Paul could have said that if it was true. He needn't speak of God's election if that was true. He would just say, knowing, brethren beloved, you chose to believe in God. If that was true, then we would only need to ask those who believe what I've just said, to show us one verse in the Bible where it says that God chose us because we chose him. We can't choose him. We don't choose ourselves for salvation. Not until we are not, we don't recognize this until God speaks to our heart and shows us that truth and opens up the gospel to us. Third question is, when were we chosen? And the answer to these questions aren't hard to find. You were chosen before you were born. Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, verse number 11, and there he uses Jacob and Esau as the prototype for this doctrine. And he says in that 11th verse, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. So before you were born, before you could do anything that was good, before you did anything that was evil, you were chosen. And it's stated that way to show us that there is no action by any person that caused God to choose them. Paul applied this personally when he said, I was chosen from my mother's womb. And that means before he was born that God formed him for his purposes. Jeremiah said that he was chosen before he was born. In Acts chapter 2, Peter said that salvation comes to the children of the Jews that are called by God. And he meant those in his generation and those in generations of the future that God would call out the ones that he chose for salvation. So you were chosen before you were born. How long before you were born? I can't answer that specifically because it was before God created time. It was in eternity past, before God created the world. And so you can look at that timeline and you would recognize very easily that it was long before Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died then, there were specific people that, was, that were on his mind. There, there were people that he said God the Father had given him 
and had sent him to die for. And he came into this world to seek and to save those that are lost. So you see, there isn't any afterthought with God. God doesn't wait on what we do. He waits on no one. He is the eternal God. So that means when a person becomes a Christian today, it's because he was always determined to be. That God determined that he would call him to salvation. Well, now we take on some new territory today. We're going to ask our fourth question. And this is, why were we chosen? Why were we chosen? And before answering, I I need to return to question number two, who chose us. We're not chosen because God saw that we would choose him. That's not the reason. We've already ruled that out when we determined who does the choosing. Now, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians once again. We, we turned here last week, Ephesians chapter 1, and we looked at this first chapter and a few verses here and pulled out a few facts from it. So let's look at it again, beginning again in verse number 3, Ephesians 1 verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, first we would see that God did not choose everyone to salvation. In verse number four, it says he has chosen us. That is, he has chosen those that believe. Now you'll look at verse number six. Why did he choose? Well, it says that he chose us to make us accepted in the beloved. So everyone that is chosen is accepted in Christ. And that tells us if everyone was chosen to be saved, then everyone would be accepted in Christ. I think you know what that doctrine is. That is the false doctrine of universalism. That everybody will be saved. Everybody will go to heaven. But it's very clear in reading this that there is a differentiating choice that has been made. Not everyone goes to heaven. So we know not everyone has been chosen. Now if you look at verses 5 and 6, this is the primary answer to our question. This is the foundational answer for everything that God does. Why were we chosen? Verse number 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, if you'll go down to verse number 9, and then we'll read verse number 11. In verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he had purposed in himself. Verse number 11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now you keep seeing there his will, the will of God, the good pleasure of his will, the mystery of his will, the counsel of his will. He purposes in himself. And you need to get that point driven into your mind that God's purpose is centered in himself. It is his will for himself that drives the purpose. So first and primary, the reason that God chose us 
is because of the glory of His grace. Because of the glory of God's grace. Have you read that grace excludes boasting? Have you read that grace is the act of God alone? That grace is given to the undeserving? Paul said in Romans 9.11, we read a moment ago, that the purpose of election is not from, uh, because of our works, because, but because of His. It's God's will that He be magnified through His grace that's given to sinners. And His grace is saving grace, so that all that are given saving grace will be saved. So we were chosen according to God's will to receive saving grace. Well, what's the alternative if, if God didn't cho choose solely according to his will? Well, well, then he must have chosen partially according to our will. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, The alternative explanation is that the apostle is saying that Christians, those who enjoy these blessings, were chosen by God before the foundation of the world because God, with his perfect knowledge, saw that we would exercise faith and thereby differentiate themselves from those who do not exercise faith. In other words, God chooses those who of themselves had already chosen to be Christians. Those who have decided to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have sought salvation. There is no third possibility. Clearly, that is not what Paul said in these verses. That God chose us according to his will, not ours. And we believe because of God's will, not ours. And so that rules out any motive that we have to boast. Or that we have any part in our salvation. And then let me also add that to bring glory to God for his grace, we can't be chosen because of anything we would do. Nothing we do. Even repentance and faith can be the cause of God choosing us because then we would glory, not God. Now, if you think about it for just a moment, ask yourself this question, why am I saved? Why am I saved? Is it because I'm smarter than people that aren't saved? Is it because I'm richer or poorer than those who aren't saved? Is it because I'm more educated than people that aren't saved? Or are you saved because you're famous? Anybody here famous? Well, if you're saved for any of those reasons or any other, then you weren't saved by God's grace. So our election and our salvation are only by God's sovereign grace, and it's that way, because only that way does God receive all the glory. And so in God's marvelous grace, you were chosen to be a gift to His Son, Jesus Christ. So your salvation is all about God and none about you. God is always in this for him, for God. It's according to his pleasure and his purpose in grace. In John 17, 2, which we studied a week or so ago, it says there that Christ gives eternal life to those that are given to him by the Father. That God is glorified in the death of Christ for those people. God honored his promise to the Son. He promised to give them to Christ if Christ died for them and God never lies. And so God's glory filters down into every reason for our election. But you wouldn't know that by listening to most preaching. Today in most churches you will hear that, well, this is about your potential. This is about what you can do. Mostly it's about what you're capable of. of that, that God finds pleasure in you when you find pleasure in yourself. When you, when, you, when you are happy, when you are joyous in yourself, when you've done the things and you can do the things that you want to do, then that makes God happy when you are happy. 
So it's all about your potential. Be all you can be. That's more the army's motto than it is God's. Be all you can be in religion. And that's going to leave you far short of the glory of God. But let me give an example of how most preaching goes. What, what happens in the stories of the Bible when you hear most preaching? All of you know the story of David and Goliath. And how many of you have heard this? You've heard an application of that story that you're like David and you have the potential to conquer the giants that are in your life. That's typical preaching. So you're put into the story of David and Goliath and it becomes a metaphor for your life and you can be the hero of the story of your life. But did you know that has nothing to do with the story of David and Goliath? That is self-contextualization, not biblical contextualization. The story of David and Goliath is about God's sovereign power. It's about God's plan and God's potential and about what only God can do. And so God is the hero of that story, not David. It's about God setting up the seed of the Messiah who would sit forever on David's throne. And so David just becomes a placeholder in this story. And it's about God's anointed and God positioning Israel to be the kingdom through which Christ came, the real hero. It's not about David picking up five stones in case there should be four misses, but it's about one stone providentially guided to the forehead of a giant that God would kill so that Israel would survive. It's so that David would be anointed above God's people. The glory goes to God, never to us. You are elected and you are saved for the glory of God. Christ is magnified, the Father is glorified in our election. So never make this about God choosing you because of what you would do for him. And you should never falsely charge that election is unfair to those who aren't chosen. It can't be unfair unless there's something in them that is deserving for them to be chosen. But there is nothing in any of us. The reason that we are chosen is only in God. All of us are justly deserving of death and hell. And until you get this into your heart, that this is not primarily about you, then you're always going to insist that what God does for one, he must do for another. No, God must not do anything but give justice. Nobody gets injustice from God. Some get mercy, but there aren't any that get injustice. Now, the next reason that God chooses might be somewhat confusing at first, but I want you to stay with me. That God chooses because of sin. Because you are a sinner. Because you are, God had to choose you. You couldn't choose yourself because the sinful nature won't permit you to choose God. You were born in sin. Scripture says that you'll always choose against God and your sinful choices must be overcome by an operation of God on your heart. God cannot and he will not bring you to him without dealing with your sin first. Sin dishonors God. Scripture says that the wrath of God is on those children of disobedience. So then what does God do? He chooses you to be holy, to bring you out of that disobedience. So this is the second reason that God chooses. You're choose, chose, chosen to honor God with holiness. Look at verse 4 in Ephesians 1 again. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose you to be holy and without blame. 
The world is made right when sin is destroyed. This is God's purpose. He, he sent Christ to remove sin, to remove this blight from his creation, to remove the curse that came on us because of Adam's fall. The apostle John wrote, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Romans 8 says that the entire creation groans, waiting for the Son of God to lift the curse on creation. Creation is awaiting its final redemption. So sin put this entire world, all men and animals are at variance with God's purposes. And God's purpose is to restore man to the holy state in which he was created. And so could you imagine that anything that you would do would affect the change of the condition of the entire world? Can you imagine that your choice is essential to God's success for the entire creation? Could you put yourself in God's place and believe that you have the power to affect what the whole creation waits to see changed? And so could you possibly think for a moment that the success of Christ's death on the cross is by what you choose. Ephesians 1.4 says God chose you to come from a state of willful, blameful sin to be holy and blameless. Now our sanctification is in view, but there are those who deny God's election, election to salvation, and they say that sanctification is the only issue. That's the result that's in view, that we're chosen to sanctification but we're not chosen to justification. That we're chosen to sanctification, but we're not chosen to salvation. And they think that, well, we have arrived here. We have stepped on the doctrines of grace now. We've interpreted Ephesians 1 in such a way that we can see that we are chosen to be sanctified, but not chosen to be saved. I'm not making this up. This is the nonsensical argument of many of those in Christian colleges today. Christian young people are being taught this. And is it not true that those who will be sanctified must first be saved? Now, if we look at the us in verse number 4, that us is so precise and it's so personal that the us, it says we were chosen before the foundation of the world. And so if God decided to sanctify certain individuals before the foundation of the world, then he must have decided to save those same individuals. There can't be sanctification without justification. That's God's order. It's the order that we find in Romans 8, 29 and 30 in that golden chain of salvation which says that God predestines, that God calls, that God justifies, then He glorifies. So God couldn't choose a person to be holy and without blame unless He first chose to justify them. And so the us in verse 4 is not a thing. It's not sanctification that's predestined. It's the people that are predestined to be sanctified and they can't be sanctified unless they are predestined to be justified. And then we look at that word made in verse number 6. He made us that we would be accepted. He made us holy. He didn't ask us. He made us. He chose us to be holy. And what is that but election to our salvation? Now I'd like for us to look at these two areas of sanctification in the remaining time. This is good for us to get a background to the meaning of Sanctification in 1 Thessalonians. First, God chose us for inward sanctification. Holiness relates to our inward sanctification. To be inwardly holy means to be inwardly pure. 
Holy is the stronger of the two terms that we'll discuss. And inward holiness is primary because it dictates what you will be on the outside. Inward holiness means that there has been a change of heart. And so a discussion of God's election of sinful men will always bring us back to this glaring distinction between us and God. That God is pure and righteous and we have hearts that are desperately wicked. And so the heart must be changed before we can be holy. Sanctification flows out of a changed heart. This is what we would call man's moral correction. And it reemphasizes what I said before, that you can't get to sanctification without regeneration. And so if a person is chosen to sanctification, he must be chosen to regeneration. He must, be, he must have a changed heart. He has to be born again. So there's no way that we can put sanctification before a changed heart. So how could God look down through time to choose those who would choose him when none of them are yet sanctified? None of them are holy. And we can't be until God changes the heart. So that's first. You were chosen to be regenerated, to have a changed heart, to be born again by the Spirit of God. Then you'll be made inwardly holy. Now, in our text of 1 Thessalonians, Paul hit on that in verse number 5 when he says, The Word came to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power is life-changing, life-renewing power. Secondly... We're chosen for outward sanctification. We're chosen to be without blame. Now there there is a sense, of course, that we're blameless before God because we have a renewed heart. That when we stand before him in the judgment, there will be no accusation. The scriptures tell us that, Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. So there's nothing for us to be blamed for because we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. But I'd like for us to look at that in a different sense. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul said that he knew they were elect of God because they were progressing in holiness. This is something that could be seen. It's evident outwardly. And the scriptures command that we must have an outward testimony because people judge us by our actions. But we know that's not primary. And when you begin to overly dwell... On outward sanctification, you'll soon fall into error on inward sanctification. Then the outward gets reversed to be the cause of the inward. And, and that's, that's just being sanctified by what you do. And so we, we would never be able to say that the outward is a perfect guide because it's the heart that has to be changed and only God knows the heart. But I will tell you this, and the Bible supports it, if your life is a mess... And you can never seem to get it right that you are to live for Christ. Then you have an inward problem. If you always choose self in front of Christ, then you have an inward problem. And if that had happened in the Thessalonian church, Paul would never say, I know your election of God. How would he know? There has to be a change made on the inside that is seen on the outside. And so there must be some fruit of the Spirit. It must be seen that the Holy Spirit has been there and walked all over your heart. And when the Spirit walks all over your heart, you will walk with God. Outward sanctification is according to the precepts of God's Word. It's obedience to God's commands. Now, we're never saved by keeping commands. But if you never keep commands, you were never saved. Now, remember... God's purpose is always that he will be glorified. 
And how did Jesus say that you will glorify the Father? By your good works. Let people see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. So outward sanctification is for the glory of God. If you don't live a good, clean, moral Christian life, then God is not glorified through you. So what purpose are you to God if you don't glorify Him? God is in this for Him, and if you don't glorify Him, He'll never let you have fellowship with Him. 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. On Sunday mornings, before we get into the preaching service, we pause to confess our sins. And that silent prayer of confession is a time for you to ask God to forgive you for not always being faithful. Your sin prevents fellowship with God, and God wants everyone in here to be in fellowship with him, not just pretending to be in fellowship with him. What is salvation in Christ? It's to reject our way for God's way, and it's to follow him in faithfulness. So outward sanctification follows inward sanctification because you can't walk with him until your heart is changed. And did you know that as a baptized Christian, something that we're going to show in just a few minutes, that you said this when you went under the water, when you were immersed in that water, Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead... By the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. You're new in Christ, inwardly sanctified, so you are to walk with Christ, outwardly sanctified. So your election, your regeneration, your justification, your sanctification, these are all the will of God that was determined before you were born. I read something interesting yesterday about these doctrines uh, regeneration, justification, sanctification, election, and all of these, people say, you know, well, those are hard things to understand. And most people don't understand them, so what we need to do is to, is to change those words and use something else, and we need to take our Bibles and change them and retranslate things so people understand it. In other words, what we need to do is dumb down the Bible so people can understand it. Whereas, what we should do is educate people up to the Bible so they do understand it. Because they'll never understand until the Holy Spirit shows them it anyway. That's His work to do. Now, thirdly and quickly, and I'll close. Why did God choose us? He chose us to reverse our rebellion. Let's return to the text in 1 Thessalonians. In verse 3, Paul said, I remember your work of faith. And he means the work that God did in them when they believed. This is the work of God that you believe. That's what Jesus said. You must be brought to spiritual life to believe. Then he says your labor of love. And how do we get to labor of love? Why do we love God? Why do we show our love? It's because Christ loved us first. So you can write down 1 John 4, 7 and 4, 10. Those are proof texts that you can read later, later. And they tell us that God loved us first. God loved first. Romans says that God loved us and God died for us or Christ died for us while we were yet in our sins. And it says when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And do you know what he means for without strength? He means you had no potential. That you had no ability, no ability to repent, none to believe, none to choose, no ability to do anything for God. 
You are a sinner in rebellion against God. And further than that, the Scripture says that you are at enmity with God. That's a word that means that you're hostile. Enmity is deep-seated ill will against another. Enemy is hatred. Enmity is hatred and strife. When you see how the Bible describes us spiritually, it's very hard to believe that anyone would argue that faith precedes regeneration. No, God loves and God chose to remove that hostility. We don't love God first and therefore we can't choose God first because we don't choose what we don't love. Now, I've heard many people who aren't Christians will say, well, that's all wrong. I don't hate God. Now, some do. You'll run across some people, but not very often. Most people don't say that they hate God. Almost everybody believes that, that God loves them, and God loves them enough that if they were to die right now, they're ready to go to heaven right now. But we don't need to argue the point about whether God loves everybody or how God loves everybody. We only need to know this, that without Christ, you're separated from God. So whether or not He loves you, you hate Him. Oh, but no, you say, I love God. Jesus, I love Jesus. No, you love Jesus that you made up in your own mind. You love a God that doesn't punish sin. You love a different God than the Christian God of the Bible. You are in love with your concept of God, not God. The God of the Bible says you hate Him. You sin because you hate Him. And those are the facts, Jack. Because the holy God that never lies said this about you in Romans 8, 6-8. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity with God. Enmity, hostile towards God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Enmity. You cannot please God. You are against God. You don't just dislike God, you're hostile to Him. And that's the reason people make up a different God to believe. They don't like Him the way He is. Now here's the point. God chose you to end your hostility. He chose you to change you into a person that will glorify Him with your life. God chose you in selfless love to bring you to Him when you desperately hated Him. That's not your strength. That's the strength of of God's election. You see, God receives glory for salvation because this was decided before you were born. You made no choice. God saw you would make no good choices. Enemies of God don't make good choices about Him. You deserve to die and go to hell just like I deserved it. So He didn't choose you because you would choose Him. But we've worked our way out of time for today. And do you know what I have to say about what I've just told you? Man, that's awesome. I mean, that, that's, that's just old-time Bible and old-time Paul and old-time Baptist, and that's just awesome. I feel younger already after preaching this sermon. So what, what kind of church is Berean? It's a church that preaches the electing grace of God. Thank God that He chose you. And if you believe today, right now, today, it is because God chose you. And that's the electing love of God the Father. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for that great love by which you loved us, sending Jesus into the world to die for our sins. 
Lord, we thank you that this is an electing love, a love that was in you before the world was created. You know everything that you created. You know every purpose for which you created them. There is nothing found out that you didn't know. As Acts 15 says, known from the beginning are all the works that you do. So, Lord, we thank you that you chose us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your mercy, your love, and your grace. We thank you that salvation excludes our boasting. And we know, Lord, that if any of us depend, any depended on us, anything that we would choose to do, that we would be lost forever in hell. So, Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die and that we are given as a gift to your Son to receive eternal life in him. And, Lord, the wonderful thing about this is today that any person sitting here as they hear me preach this, if they wonder, have they been chosen by you? Are they one of the elect of God? They will know that when they believe. And now we call upon everyone to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and that their hearts are opened up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by that belief, we know, as Paul said, you are the elect of God. So bless us today. We thank you, Father. Uh, especially for the baptism that will come in just a few minutes. Thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.